And welcome to the RAW podcast at Manchester Metropolitan University. This series will explore the Anthony Burgess cassette archive. Anthony Burgess was born in Manchester in 1917. He published more than 50 books, including A Clockwork Orange and Earthly Powers, and he composed around 250 musical works. His wife Liana carried a cassette recorder at all times to capture her life with the author and their son. The archive now contains these intimate recordings and has been remixed by 23 artists in a new project which provides unique insight into Burgess. Find out more about the project at subrosa.net. Stick around for the whole episode series to find out more about Anthony Burgess from Andrew Biswell, director of the Foundation. The most unusual things in the archive from Anna Edwards, the Foundation's archivist. How the project came about from Alan Dunn, artist and producer. And how Scanner, aka Robin Rimbaud, worked with the archival material. We'll also get to hear some of the archive recordings and adaptations too. So stay tuned. In this episode, Matt Foley interviews Scanner about his history of using archive recordings. My name is Robin Rambo, aka Scanner, and I produced a piece for the Anthony Burgess compilation, which is exploring the cassette archive. So let's get into our fourth and final episode. Over to you, Matt. Well, I'm delighted to be joined now by Robin Rambo, who performs under the name Scanner. Now, Robin, um, you've been involved as one of the artists in the conversations with Anthony Burgess Project. Can you say a little bit about how you got involved in the project initially? Mm. So the curator, Alan Dunn, I've known for some years, and he approached me some time ago, at least a year ago, and said, would you be interested in principle in an idea of dealing with these archives? And Burgess was a figure I was very familiar with. And my own work is often focused on ideas of archives and voices and cassettes and these kinds of things. So in a way, all the themes, the, the kind of ingredients were appealing on first call. Is there something you know, that personally interests you about encounters with past archives or indeed with kind of past analogue technology? Because a lot of the recordings here are, are from answering machines from yeah. the past. And is that kind of encounter perhaps between the contemporary digitised practice and mm. the, the analogue past? It's interesting. It's a good question because the artist name that I've used now for 27 years professionally, Scanner, came about because it was literally the device I was using. It was a radio scanner in the late 80s, early 90s. And this machine, which looks like an old, fat 1980s mobile phone you'd see in a movie, was in fact a way to tune into people's personal phone calls. So it's an analog system that allowed me to stand with you in a room and I could tune through the frequencies and listen to private conversations between two individuals. And so in a way, what I was able to do was store in real time something that was happening and build up my own archive of these conversations. So in some ways, this idea of the Burgess archive on cassette was appealing because also since I was a teenager, since 1975, my brother and I used to just record our living room, Ooh. football on television. I used to record Spider-Man before video recorders were around. It's simply because we could do it. 
And I think that's what intrigued me when I heard about the Burgess archive and the fact that there were recordings not only of answer phone messages, but of bird song or mm. the sounds of just a room in itself. I found that quite beautiful because it's something that's always appealed to me. The first holidays I ever took when I was about 18 or 19, I went to Italy, then I went to Berlin and I recorded the holidays. I didn't take photos. I took a Sony portable tape recorder from the moment I left my front door on the plane, walking through the station, you know, the metro, everything. So and I still have those tapes. I have hundreds of cassettes. Mm. So it's become this kind of wealthy archive for myself. So the very idea of the Burgess archive sitting there for someone to plunder mm. is an extraordinary opportunity. And every cassette tells a story. I wondered if when you were listening to the cassettes themselves, if you could hear an ambience that would match the voice, so to speak, or would match the, the words. I was interested in the voices, the sounds of the answer phone messages. I think the, the, what interests me is the idea of being a witness to answer phone messages. So the messages come through. You come in at the end of the day and you check your machine and it goes beep and plays the message. So you're witnessing something that happened before. Now, what I'm doing is witnessing somebody witnessing. <laughs> so you, you end up in this really interesting kind of chamber mm. of mirrors. And I find that quite mm. fascinating in a way. I'm listening to uh, Burgess or his wife listening. And also they're not high fidelity recordings. They're not mm. made in the studio. It's somebody with a portable recorder holding it next to the machine. So you're also hearing the ambient space around mm. them of the room they're in, which I really love that idea that you're kind of picturing in some way the space in which you're hearing it. Of course, the CD that's been produced for the project includes the original recordings mm. and they're not chronologically arranged and they seem to be kind of almost thematically arranged. So this idea of temporality being mixed up and the whole project more, more broadly is something that really interests me when I was listening to them. I mean, do you think that there's something haunting about this idea of mixing time registers up and this kind of encounters with a lost voice? Yeah. Was there something yeah. ghostly you think that was feeding into your, your piece yeah. in particular? Absolutely. Or? I mean, I, I've always been interested in ideas of, I don't believe in ghosts as such, but I'm interested in ideas of voices from beyond, you know, extraordinary voice phenomena that have been around for years where people have been recording in empty rooms and you, they play the tapes back later and you hear movement or you hear something. I've done one number of projects over the years kind of exploring these things. And I think it's interesting on this release, which is, you know, audio in itself is a form of time travel. Mm -hmm. We capture something that happens now in real time and we listen to it in the future. So in the future, we're always listening to the past. It's quite interesting. But what we're able to do with the Burgess tapes, for example, is, as you suggest, is move through time and put different times together. So you mm -hmm. could, if you want to, put the first and the last recordings of Burgess together and in a sense make him talk to himself mm. as an older man to a young mm. man, from a young man to an older man. There's all kinds of tricks one can do. And, you know, audio technology is quite phenomenal like that in, in its basic way because even when you look at an audio form on a screen, visually you can move through the frame, you can move through the image of sound, you can see the waveform and you can go forwards and backwards, you can reverse it. Those kind of technologies always fascinate me, mm. even in the most kind of basic ways that we can take a voice and reverse it. And, you know, these are analog tapes, so they're kind of embedded in a format that doesn't doesn't decay very much either. Mm. It's extraordinary. It's quite fascinating that we're looking at these older technologies which are still functioning perfectly well as 
as well. Mm. When you're listening to a sonic world or something that's being created acoustically, when voices come in, the voice quite often takes precedence. You know, people's mm. ears are drawn to the voice because it, it contains often something recognisable, language, etc. Mm. How do you find working with voices in, in comparison to the ambiences that are created behind it, the kind of framing of the voice? Is that something that you think about in the, the journey of the song itself? It is. It's something that still fascinates me, the kind of, let's call it the kind of ghostly presence of the voice. And when I first used the voice in my work in the kind of early 90s in electronic music, most music was instrumental. People weren't using the voice. The only voice that was being used was a sung voice. I was using voices of somebody just chatting in the street mm. and then mixing it into these kind of relatively dark cinematic soundscapes. And it was quite unsettling for a lot of people. You know, because these voices were telling stories that weren't ever meant to be heard again. And it's quite beautiful, I find, to be able to look at a conversation again and examine it. And the human voice is something we all respond to, even if it's not a language you understand. You're hearing this kind of musical quality to it. And I think that's that, that can be so beautiful about words. Mm. I was on the train last week going up to Leeds and I was in, in a carriage. And at one point I thought I can hear almost sort of 20 or 30 voices all speaking but I'm not really hearing one conversation. I'm hearing this kind of merging, this mm. blur of words. And actually, it was quite beautiful. It's a bit like a kind of choral piece. But these voices are all telling their own stories, but we can't pick up any focus. It's all going through this blur. And mm. I find that really beautiful. One of the things that the cassettes you know, document is Burgess's interest in music and his musicianship. And your piece is called Whilst His Piano Gently Weeps, which mm. um, is perhaps a reference to Burgess, but also to George Harrison's Beatles song. So why, why did you pick that as the title to the piece? I was struck always like, Burgess was a very comical writer at times, and I wanted to use a title that was quite witty. And at times, like, Burgess was a terrible pianist. You'd, you'd almost want to cry thinking, oh, no, I've tried to record it and it's wrong again. Oh, no, I've tried and it's failed again. So I thought, you know, you'd almost be weeping. So it was just a playful... It was a play on words. And, of course, there's also a tape where Burgess is talking about the Beatles. He does an impersonation of John Lennon. It's on the, it's on the album, and it, I found it quite affectionate, actually. There is a well-established body of, of writing around Burgess, uh, you know, about his work as a, a composer. Was was that something that you were aware of when you were invited into the, the project, about how, how deeply important music is to Burgess as, as an yeah. artist? Well, I was thinking, I mean, I, I knew that he was involved in music and I'd heard some of the works. And that's very difficult for artists to be significantly respected in two different worlds without people being cautious about it. I mean, Burgess was one of those figures who was actually equally respected, both in literature and music. And I thought that was quite unusual. Here, and what's interesting on these tapes is the innocence of them, because often, you know, he's playing a piece and he's, he's practicing it. He's trying to get it right. And at that point, that's where it becomes interesting for me. You know, it's the mistakes. Mm. These aren't professional recordings, Burgess or his wife recording him, just to capture this moment, to store this, so perhaps they can listen back to it later, perhaps he can kind of critique himself, who knows. You've had a chance to perform this at the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. How does the music change when it's performed? So I was able essentially to put many of the audio recordings into this system, like a modular synthesizer system, and perform it as if I'm using old tape decks. In that way, I can make loops of voices. So I can take a, a tape from one year 
loop it next to a voice from another year and then change the pitch of them, play them on top of each other, build loops up, this kind of thing. But it seemed to work quite well. I mean, it was very much an improvisation. There wasn't a finished piece. Mm. I made a piece for the CD and I made a performance. The two things only are connected because they both use similar material. So what's interesting for me is there's a sense of risk. I stand there with the materials and even the end of it wasn't meant to happen as it ended. I actually hit pause on something because it emulates a tape and I hit pause and the whole thing went and I thought, well, it has to end here. That was kind of a perfect end in a way, but it wasn't Mm. meant to end Mm. like that. So, yeah, I I like kind of playing in a sense. It's almost as if the live versions in conversation with the recorded version itself, yeah, which, which yeah, fits with the that. themes of the project. Exactly. And I wanted the live version to feel or to, or in a sense, to capture the same essence or character as the tapes were made in. And I think the performance had that way of saying, here I am at this moment in time. And what you're going to experience is really only heard in this time. Of course, it was filmed, it was documented. But for me, there's still a magic about being there in the real time, not knowing what's going to happen and whether it's going to kind of fail or not. Is my synthesizer going to be gently weeping or not, you know? Well, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. Thank you so much for your time, Robin Rimble Scanner. Thank you. Thank you. We'll finish off the episode with a clip from Scanner's performance at the launch event for the project. Hello, good evening. Just to give you a context, I had access to the archive and what I've done here, I don't have a piece to play you. I don't like playing something that's all ready to go. Uh, What I've got is lots of recordings of Burgess from the tapes and I have lots of signals going into those that can randomly chop them up given that the archives are quite generous in size and I have quite a lot of sounds I can't honestly say what's going to happen Uh, but I hope you enjoy it and of course because I don't know what it's going to be I hope it works (laughs) so thank you Oh, we 
and becomes the young thug he always was. But as the story ends, he grows out of his taste for violence, he grows up. The novel was published in uh, 1962, to little notice and small applause. Ten years later, it was made into a film which convulsed the nation. This was because it was made out of visual images, not literary constructs. Words can hit hard, but not so hard as shapes in Technicolor. The film was alleged to have been the cause of gratuitous violence among the young. Parliament asked for it to be banned. The director, Stanley Kubrick, an American living at Boreham Wood, was apparently threatened by guardians of public order. The film exists elsewhere, as Urbec Orange or Narasani County and so on, but not here. Kubrick committed a secondary sin in making the film, but the primary sin was regarded as my own. And yet I'd done my best to avoid the pornography of violence through the employment of verbal tricks. I wrote the novel in a weird invented language, a, a mixture of Russian, rhyming slang, the gypsy bolo, invented language of all kinds, in order to make the violent substance of the book difficult for the reader to reach. 
by this time, by the time the reader had sighed for the phrase like, uh, I gave him a tall jog on the rot and dressed you with my usual on the hot gears. The reverend had as you already must know. There was no real possibility of corruption. In the film there was total explicit dummy. But uh, I would say this finally that art is subversive in that it's not greatly concerned with regular communal morality, morality imposed by the community and sustained by the state. Uh, morality in art is really a kind of evasion of morality, and it can, in fact, be called amorality. On the other hand, uh, morality in the, in the ultimate sense of theological morality, theological concepts like good and evil, are very much the concern of art. I seem to have wandered away from the initial questions was, can art be a moral? Uh, the answer is yes, if art disobeys its own rules. If it ceases to proper aesthetic pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you haven't already, do go back and listen to the other episodes in this series. All of our previous episodes are available on SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Tune back in soon for more episodes. This episode of the RAW podcast was presented by Matt Foley, presented, produced and edited by Lucy Simpson and mixed by Julian Holloway.